the Tennis Gambling Podcast on the Sports Gam Podcast Network, presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code SGP. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any NFL game. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. We're also brought to you by Game Time. Snag the tickets without the stress. Use promo code SGPN. On your first purchase, save $20. Download the Game Time app and use promo code SGPN. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Play the Underdog Pick'em in college or NFL and win up to 20 times your money in one game. Use promo code SGPN Underdog Fantasy for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. Finally, we're brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting research platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Download the Hall of Fame Bets app or visit hofbets.com. Use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month and start making smarter bets today. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Game Podcast Network. It is currently Monday afternoon, September 11th, and I'm your host, as always, Scott Reichel, once again, going solo for this pod. For this episode, going to do something a bit different, something we've not done yet in the history of this podcast. Going to do a recap episode, which sounds very boring, I understand, but I feel like it's necessary to do. Now, there's a reason why I decided to do a separate standalone episode for the U.S. Open final recap. And the big reason is the ATP schedule, because I thought after the U.S. Open, you might end up seeing a tournament or two in the following week. However, I was surprised and disappointed when I looked at the calendar and realized there was no ATP tennis scheduled after the U.S. Open final until the 20th. Once again, those two tournaments taking place in China. So because of that, you had about nine or 10 days off in between ATP matches. And as a result, I thought it would be a bit weird to wait 10 days to recap the U.S. Open final when, once again, it was about a week and a half after it happened. So I thought it would make more sense while the match was fresh in all of our minds. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this podcast watch the match, so I thought it would make more sense to do it immediately as a reaction video, basically, or a reaction podcast, as opposed to having a delayed reaction, where I'm sure a lot of people remember watching the match, but maybe forgot some of the actual intricacies involved in the match. So because of that, we're doing a recap episode. If you want some betting picks, apologies, no betting picks in this episode, but we'll be resuming the normal gambling content for ATP Tennis in about a week and change from now. So just keep that in mind. Wanted to mention that. So once again, if you don't want to listen to this podcast because there are no picks, I understand. But I wanted to at least admit that in the first five minutes before you wasted all your time. So anyway, if you want to stick around and listen to my thoughts and takeaways from the U.S. Open final, you came to the right place. If not, I understand. And I'll catch you on the next episode. But still, point is, before we get into any of my takeaways for the U.S. Open final, do want to have a quick word from our sponsor. Football is back in full swing with another epic week of games. And who's got you covered on the action for every single one of them? DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet $5 on football and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Nobody's missing on the action this season. All DraftKings customers can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Get in on the NFL action with DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code SGP to sign up. New customers can bet just $5 and take home $200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details and say specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus must expire seven days after issuance. 
We're also brought to you by Game Time. I don't know about all of you, but I was always stressed out trying to buy tickets to my favorite team sporting events. And now that's no longer an issue because Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all these sports, music, comedy, and theaters near you. Personally, I'm going to end up using it probably in week one to go to the Jets-Bills game on Monday Night Football, which should be a lot of fun. But they have a lot of great features on the app, including images of seat views, which is my favorite feature. In the past, with other platforms, you might buy a ticket and you don't exactly know what the exact view is going to be. So you try to guess what you think it's going to be, and it turns out you have an obstruction directly in front of you, and you just paid money for tickets that you are basically worthless because you can't see the actual action you paid for. But that's not an issue with this feature because now with the images of seat views, game time will show you what the exact view is. So you'll get a perfect view of the action. But game time is also the place for last minute ticket deals. Forget planning months in advance. Game time has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. Get flash deals on tickets for football, basketball, baseball, concerts, comedy, theaters, and more. And the game time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Sign the tickets without the stress with game time. Download the game time app, create an account, and use code SGPN for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code SGPN for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. We're also brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets. Win bigger by betting smarter this NFL season with Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting analytics platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Research every NFL, NBA, MLB, and soccer bet with historical stats and data. Enter any parlay idea into Hall of Fame Bets revolutionary parlay optimizer tool to get hit rates broken down by leg, as well as expected probability for the entire parlay. Sort all players by hit rate for any bet to learn which players are hot and which picks have value. Stop betting in the dark and join over 30,000 users researching with Hall of Fame bets to craft more intelligent, data-driven parlays. Download the Hall of Fame bet app or visit hofbets.com and use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month today. Start Start researching, start winning with Hall of Fame bets. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy has a way to play alongside your favorite football team all season long with their fantasy pick'em game. You pick between two and five players, select whether to go higher or lower on any of their stats. Then you do what you always do on Sunday, which is watch all the games, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single game by going five for five. It's a fantasy game, but you can win real money. So watch along, make your picks, and maybe make a little money over at Underdog's mobile app or website, underdogfantasy.com. And remember, when you sign up, Use the promo code SGPN, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. That's Underdog Fantasy, promo code SGPN. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gameway Podcast. Just finished explaining why I was having a separate episode, a standalone episode, for the recap of the U.S. Open Men's Final. Now it's time to actually get into into the recap itself, and we're going to start off with the Lock and Dog picks. Unfortunately, after sweeping the women's final on Saturday, did go 0-2 with the Lock and Dog picks on Sunday. Main reason, I gave Medvedev too much credit. Now, I picked Djokovic to win, so I wasn't totally wrong. However, I did think Medvedev would have moments where he'd be able to win a set or two, and he did have a moment or two, because in that second set, which took about an hour and 44 minutes, which is one of the longest sets I've ever seen, not including Isner-Mohut sets that take about three years. But still, the point is it was one of the longest sets I've ever seen, and Medvedev had a set point in the breaker. I thought he actually had a pretty decent look at a passing shot, and he just chose to hit the ball directly at Djokovic instead, uh, which gave Djokovic a free rally, or free volley, I mean. So the point is, Medvedev did have 
uh, set point, and unfortunately, he could not convert. And that was his best chance as he ended up losing the match. 6-3, 7-6, 6-3. Djokovic did win his 24th Grand Slam title. I mentioned that uh, once again in a second and get into Djokovic's legacy. Before I get into that, I do want to recap the picks. So, once again, we thought Djokovic would win, but we did think it would be a close battle. So, because of that, we ended up taking Medvedev over two and a half breaks of serve at minus 163 on bet365 as my lock. Did not get there. Medvedev broke one time. Had some looks, but really never made any adjustments when it came to his returning position for the entire match, which was extremely frustrating, and that ended up resulting in a loss. Then for the dog, we did have Djokovic to win, but we added on each player to win a set at plus 130, and that did not get there either as Djokovic won in straight sets. So to go through, once again, what went wrong for Medvedev, there's a couple ways to actually go about this recap portion of the episode, because on one hand... I could start off with Djokovic's legacy. On the other hand, I can go about the match itself. I think for this one, I'm going to go with the match itself, and then I'll get into Djokovic's legacy later on. So to start off with the actual match, I mentioned it a second ago, but Medvedev did have a set point. I was wrong, though. It was not in the tiebreaker. It was actually in the 5-6 game. He had an advantage for set point, and the actual point itself was still the same that I'm thinking of in my head, where he had a passing shot down the line, chose not to take it, hit it right back to Djokovic for a free volley, so which was a waste of an opportunity. But Medvedev had a lot of chances to win that second set. He had a break point as well at the 3-4 uh, game, and he ended up not converting. Uh, basically, though, it was an absolute marathon. A lot of the games went to deuce, or at least 40-30, and because of that, you saw a lot of energy being expended from both players. Medvedev ended up getting a visit from the trainer after that to work on his back and shoulders, and that didn't help him as Djokovic ended up winning the third set. I didn't mention, though, Medvedev was also uh, able to actually break in the third set. He was down a break, got the break back, and then immediately punted it, which was the biggest false hope or the fastest false hope. Because it looked like Djokovic was going to run away with it. Then Medvedev actually stole a game, and then he immediately punted it right back. So we had the illusion of hope there in the third set for maybe five minutes, and it was gone. But you're looking at how the match played out. i got to mention the actual stats for the players. So Djokovic obviously had the better stats in basically every area. Now, Medvedev did do a better job of landing the first serve. Landed 65% compared to Djokovic's 54%. So I was right about Djokovic once again struggling with the first serve percentage, and I thought Medvedev would still stand behind the court, but I did think he'd do a better job of making an adjustment at some point to put pressure on Djokovic. Didn't happen, because Djokovic did win 81% of his first serve points, did win 54% of his second serve points, which doesn't sound great, but then you realize that 54% of the second serve is not bad against an elite returner like Medvedev, and for Medvedev only winning 38% of his second serve points, which really summed up the match because Djokovic did win 16 more percent uh, in the second serve points battle there, which definitely swayed the match. Now to go through some other factors here, I did expect Djokovic to be very aggressive uh, coming to the net, and I was aware his volleying skills had improved, but it was really, really good in the semifinal and in the final Djokovic was phenomenal at the net. And to go through his actual numbers here, Djokovic won 37 of his 44 net points. So he won 84% 
of the points that he came to the net for, which was extremely impressive. It was a great volleying display by Djokovic. I was not surprised by how much serve and volleying we saw with Djokovic, but he did exactly what I said that Alcaraz should have done. I said Alcaraz was aggressive with the second, with the overall serve and volley and the kick serves in general. But I said that Alcaraz should have even gone further and potentially served and volleyed on every point. And that's basically what Djokovic did. He was constantly serving out wide. He constantly came to the net and he won the majority of those points because Medvedev was out of position. And Medvedev, when you have to hit a perfect passing shot from 20 feet behind the baseline in order to win a point, that's a very low percentage shot. And it made sense for Djokovic, even just instead of just the concept of taking advantage of a guy with deep serving, with deep returning positioning, the argument is Djokovic is older, obviously, at the age of 36, and he's going to want to shorten points to keep energy for some potential fourth or fifth set scenarios. Now, luckily for him, he didn't have to go to a fourth or fifth set, but physically, he was exhausted in that second set. Makes sense. The match took over 100 minutes to complete that set, which is insane to me. But the point is Djokovic kept doing the same thing over and over again, and Medvedev did nothing to stop Djokovic from doing it. Now, there were a lot of long rallies, which took a lot of energy out of Djokovic in that second set. That was our set to steal for Medvedev. I didn't think he'd win the match, but I did think once again, he'd be able to wear down Djokovic in some of these long rallies enough to some degree where he'd be able to steal a set. And that second set, I'm going to get into the details for the games in particular right now. He once again had a set point in the 5-6 game. He was up... 3-1 3-1 in the breaker, so he did have a nice mini break to start, and he was also uh, at a break. He had a break point there in the uh, in the four in the 3-4 game, and he could not convert there. But a lot of Djokovic's service games were a bit tricky when it comes to the final stages of that second set. I don't think it should have went to a breaker. I thought Medvedev should have broken in that. Uh, 5-6 game because Djokovic could not buy a first serve that entire game. And Medvedev had a lot of great chances, a bunch of deuces, and he just could not get it done because he would not move in. Djokovic couldn't hit a first serve. He had a hard time moving. He didn't have much lift in that final game. And yet Medvedev just kept letting Djokovic get free serve and volley points, which was mind-numbingly painful to watch. And you're looking at what Medvedev is doing and you're just screaming at the TV, listen, I understand you like deep service position, but read the room. The second serve for Djokovic is like 85 miles per hour. You can step in and take away the serve and volley, and he wouldn't do it. And I feel like that's going to be a quick segue as to why I think Medvedev, despite being the number one, the number three player in the world, the former number one player in the world, it's why people don't take him totally seriously in these matchups against Djokovic and against Nadal and even against Alcaraz. It's because Medvedev, despite being very successful, is a one-trick pony player. He has to win one way. And that was the main thing that he did against Alcaraz, which shocked me. He unloaded more on the first serve and on the forehand. The problem is he still returned so far back on the court that he did surrender a bunch of free points. And when Medvedev served, which is still very solid, his, sec- his first serve, his second serve is still very inconsistent, and he still double faults a lot, double faulted six times 
in the Djokovic match, he's going to hand away a couple of breaks just by losing focus. And if he's not going to be able to stop his opponents from winning a bunch of free points on the serve every time if they come to the net, he's at a disadvantage. And Medvedev just let it happen. And I know the coaching staff that he has has been solid for his overall career. But at some point, you got to tell him to step in. I don't know what you're waiting for. He's down two sets and a break. At some point, you got to realize what we're doing isn't working. We got to try something new. And he did a good job of making Djokovic run around. And he did a good job of overall not handing away that many free points in the service games that he had. He just got outplayed in a couple of service games, which is why he ended up getting broken a handful of times. He got broken uh, three times in the match, which isn't, which isn't even that bad. But he just couldn't break at all in the entire match. He broke one time and then immediately gave the break right back. But the coaching staff should have said something. Medvedev has to move in at some point because we saw it last year. It's why he had a very down 2022. It was because a lot of players, including Tsitsipas, started to implement more serve and volley tactics into their games. And Medvedev had no answers. And we saw Djokovic, who's one of the smartest players of all time, in addition to being the best. He just shows the ability to problem solve on the fly. And I feel like that's one issue that Alcaraz has that he can still learn to deal with. And Alcaraz is still very, very young. So it's not the end of the world. Alcaraz will figure it out. But I do think Djokovic has a certain edge that he played in the era where you could not mid-match coach. Because that forced the individual players to think about the problem and to adjust. And I do wonder, with certain players, are they able to make adjustments on their own? Or do they need to be spoon-fed every piece of information by their coaches? And that's one issue that I have with Alcaraz at the moment. Now, it's not his fault that changed the rules. And his coaching staff helped turn him into the number one player in the world. But the issue that I do have with Alcaraz is it's problem-solving. And he mentioned that being an issue post-match against Medvedev, where Medvedev did a good job of sticking with the game plan, unloading the first serve, and kind of dominating with the service games. And Alcaraz said post-match, he had no adjustments, he didn't know what to do, and he'll learn from the experience. But that also, once again, is kind of an indictment to Alcaraz's tennis, I don't want to say acumen, but his overall tennis IQ that he could not problem-solve on the fly. And that goes back to the point, of after every single match point that you're looking at or every single uh, event in a tennis match, Alcaraz is constantly looking for feedback from the coaches. And that might be because he cannot fully process all the information in front of him because he's too young. And I'm sure he'll figure it out at some point in his future. It's not going to stop Alcaraz from winning in the future because, once again, we know that he's the number one player in the world, or he was, and he's about to basically destroy the entire tour for the next 10 years unless somebody else shows up to challenge him once Djokovic ends up leaving his prime. But the point is, Djokovic had to go through that decade and change of not being able to get feedback from the coaching staff, so he had to problem solve. And I do wonder if he was involved in the film prep for the final, I'm assuming he was, and he knew going in, I have to serve and volley all the time. And I said that Alcaraz, once again, should do that basically every point. I would say Alcaraz did this about 70% of the time. I thought he should have done it around 85 or 90, because every time he served and volleyed, he won about 90% of those points. And you're looking at Medvedev and how he was not going to make many adjustments because it just helped him reach the final and Djokovic knew if I just hit my spots and I rally uh, a little bit, but I mostly serve and volley, I'm going to dominate. And he did. 
And I thought Medvedev, once again, would do a better job returning, and he didn't. So Medvedev just consistently slammed his head against the wall and expected different results, and it didn't work. So my main issue with Medvedev is the stubbornness with his play. He has to win one way. And I criticize Sabalenka for being the same way in the women's final recap before we got into the men's final preview in the last episode. It's kind of ironic because they play two completely different styles where Sabalenka wants to end points quickly. She wants to unload a very powerful forehand, and Medvedev does not do that. Medvedev is the opposite. He wants to rally, make points extremely long, and physically wear down his opponents by playing longer than they can. And the issue that I have with both sides of the same coin, you're looking at each player not being able to respond to adversity or to a game plan that completely counters what they want to do. And once Medvedev was unable to or decided to just not deal with Djokovic's servant volley tactics, he was screwed because he was not going to get enough break points to actually break Djokovic. And we saw that happen in the third set again, where Djokovic had a couple of big points and he just decided on coming to the net no matter what. And Medvedev just could not hit a perfect passing shot because every time Medvedev did hit a great passing shot, you'd look at where he was standing, you'd look at the angle he had. The shots he hit had to be like five percenters, but the odds of him hitting that shot are so low that most of the time he's going to go for it. He's going to slam it into the net or right at Novak for a free volley. So the main issue I had with the match itself and why I'm annoyed because we had money in some capacity on Medvedev he just did not make any adjustments in the three-plus hours, and it was very annoying to watch. But Djokovic, once again, realized his opponent's tendencies, knew what to do, and went even further on the Alcaraz servant volley tactic by servant volleying even more, and he won a lot of the points. So Djokovic did a good job of winning. Nevit is going to have to go to the drawing board unless he fully figures out a way to combat servant volley tactics He's going to have serious problems beating Alcaraz in the future. I know he just won in four sets. I'm not going to diminish that victory. But I also have to point out that Medvedev had one of the best serving matches of his entire career. And Alcaraz did not play well at all. And he still won a set and could have potentially won more because of how many free points Medvedev hands away if his opponent knows how to serve and volley. Now, that is a dying skill set in the current tennis landscape you have a couple of servant volley guys Purcell became a servant volley guy Cressy became Cressy has been a servant volley guy but Tsitsipas has done it against Medvedev in the past he's had success with it Alcaraz has had success with it Djokovic has he's had success with it Medvedev's all about winning grand slams which is the main purpose but even Zverev used some servant volley tactics when they played a couple of weeks ago it just seems like there's one extreme counter punch that Medvedev has not learned to deal with and until he does, his level of play is going to be a bit capped because he can't overcome a specific type of adversity until he makes some serious changes. And I'm not sure he's going to make some changes, which is a problem. But anyway, that's my issue with Medvedev. Is mostly involving his returning position. He's got to move in on second serves to try to deal with, once again, the obvious hole in his defensive game plan. Now, as for Djokovic, he really won three out of four grand slams again for the second time in about four or five years, and he's 36 years old. He has 24 Grand Slam titles. He announced he's not going to retire anytime soon. He's going to keep going until somebody completely destroys him, and I don't see that happening because Djokovic, unless he gets hurt, is going to keep dominating because, once again, I just mentioned a second ago, he is smarter 
than every other tennis player on the tour, and he's also extremely fit. Now, the fitness was a concern for a little bit in this match, mostly in the seriously long second set where he was falling over after shots, and you could argue that, once again, maybe he was acting a bit, but the point is he was clearly not at 100% physically, and yet he was still able to wear down the number three player in the world, which is very impressive. But Djokovic will keep going. He'll keep dominating until either he faces off against Alcaraz, who's actually not afraid to beat him, or somebody else plays the match of their life of their life. But most players in on the actual tour are just not consistent enough to beat Djokovic. They're not smart enough to beat Djokovic. And there's also still an aura around Djokovic where a lot of his opponents lose 20 minutes into the match once they fall down a break. They see Djokovic across from them. They're usually on the main court and they immediately just start shaking because the moment's too big for them. And even Alcaraz had that happen to him in the French Open. But the point is, Djokovic is going to keep going until injuries probably stop him. Because based on his fitness and his commitment to the craft, I don't see Djokovic suddenly losing everything that he has. I see him continuing to dominate. He'll probably win at least one or two Grand Slams next year. I don't know Alcaraz has something to say about it. But it's really the issue you run into with men's tennis right now. Djokovic's main rival is Alcaraz. Nadal should be coming back. I don't know how he's going to look. We'll see what happens in 2024. But besides Alcaraz and Djokovic, you're really just not scared of anybody else on the tour because there are serious holes in all of their games. And you could argue that Djokovic and Alcaraz basically have no holes in their game. Djokovic does have a hole, which is the first serve percentage right now. And the slams. We know Joka slams had some problems finishing overheads, but that's such a rare shot to actually get himself into that it's not that big of a deal. So even the holes he has are in some minor areas, but Djokovic's forehand is great. His backhand's great. The movement's great. The volleying's turned into a very solid skill for him, and he didn't have that earlier in his career. The point is Djokovic and Alcaraz are just too talented and too well-rounded for most people to beat them on a regular basis. Now, Medvedev had a day where he ended up beating Alcaraz because he played the best match he's played in a long time. But that's the point. If you need the other player to go supernova in order to win, it means that Djokovic and Alcaraz are going to dominate for a long time. And I just see that being the case in 2024. Now, as for Djokovic, I think he probably will win two more, maybe three next year because I do think at some point Alcaraz will be able to beat Djokovic every time. Once Djokovic loses a step, Alcaraz is going to be able to beat him pretty comfortably. But I just wonder when that's going to take place, because Djokovic once again has proven that 36 is not too old to dominate in tennis, and he's going to keep dominating. So my overall takeaway from the match for Djokovic, he had a great game plan, he knew exactly what to do, and he implemented it. And on top of that, he showed once again why he's the best player of all time. I don't care about the current weakness of the era he's in. He earned it after going up against Nadal and Federer and Murray and Warenka and all the other great players in the past 15 years. It's fine that he has a relatively weak uh, era. And it's not even that weak because Alcaraz is going to be the future face of the sport for 10 plus years. But people were holding it against Djokovic saying, well, he won this one, but it's a weak field. Who cares? It's not his problem. He beat the per he beat the people that are in front of him. And you can make an argument that, that Federer, when he started out, had a very weak era. And I'm one of those people because his main competition, when you look back on the mid 2000s, before, I mean, Nadal was always his adversary, his main one on clay. 
But Nadal took a while to actually win a couple of the hard court ones and the in Wimbledon. So Federer was just walking into a decent amount of Grand Slams every year because he really did not have much elite competition. You're thinking of like Safin and you're thinking of Hewitt and Roddick. And it's really just guys that in the grand scheme of things, when you compare them to some of the other elite players, they really don't stack up. So I don't believe in the weak era criticism of Djokovic because one, he won most of his titles in a very solid era and B Federer had a weak era too before Nadal and Djokovic really showed up. So I don't think it's a fair argument against Djokovic, but it's going to segue me into my main point for Djokovic. He's the greatest player of all time. If you disagree at this point when he's at 24, you're either a Nadal fan or a Federer fan because there's no reason for you to disagree with that statement. Federer, is the is a great player. Nadal is a great player. Djokovic is the greatest player, and it's really not even close at this point. He has a head-to-head record, a head-to-head winning record against Federer and Nadal. He has beaten Nadal on hard court in basically every hard court match they've had in the last 10 years. I'm not sure he's dropped a set on hard court against Nadal in the last 10 years. And Federer could have had an argument if he beat Djokovic in that Wimbledon final. But he didn't because 1540 happened again against Djokovic and Djokovic won that one in the Super Breaker. So Federer had a, did a great job of coming back after the knee issues and he was able to stay relevant and even won a couple of Grand Slam titles. But winning 24 is borderline impossible. And the fact that Djokovic still has enough energy in him to potentially get to 25 or 26 or maybe more, I don't see anybody by the time Djokovic retires being close Djokovic should have the all-time record for Grand Slams for a long, long time. He should have the all-time record for wins because he's going to play for another couple years. So you can argue that he's going to pass Connors for most wins of all time. He's already in possession of the most Grand Slams of all time. He has had to have a winning record against Joke against uh, Federer and Nadal. There's really nobody near him. And if you still, once again, disagree about jo- about Djokovic being the best player of all time, I think you're a hater. Just simply put, I think you're a biased fan of Federer or Nadal, and you don't want to give Djokovic credit. And I think that, once again, I'm a fan of teams and players in sports, but I got to at least view it unbiasedly on occasion. Djokovic is the best to ever do it. Deal with it. It's fine if you don't like him. It's fine if you, once again, hated the way he handled the vaccination stuff a couple years ago. Whatever. It's in the past. It is what it is. But Djokovic, once again, is the best player ever. Deal with it. That's my takeaway for the legacy. He's going to be the best player for a long time. People want to crown Alcaraz to surpass Djokovic at some point when Djokovic does retire. I feel like, once again, it's a lot easier to say Alcaraz is going to do all these things before he actually does it. The durability is a problem for Alcaraz because he's already been injured several times in his career, and it was an issue for Djokovic early in his career. But Alcaraz is so athletic, He's so tenacious. He doesn't give up on any balls that are available. And I do think when you're looking at the issue Alcaraz can run into, he has gotten injured a decent amount. He's been able to overcome it. We saw it in the U.S. Open last year where he was battling some type of leg injury and he won anyway. But the point is, if you're going to get injured a lot, then I do have questions if you will be able to win 25-plus Grand Slams. Will Alcaraz finish with a lot of Grand Slams? Of course. I'm not saying his career is going to fall off a cliff, but 25 is not just based on being a great player. It's based on being the most durable player of all time. And Djokovic has barely missed any time 
because of injury in the last couple of years. Now, he did miss a couple of Grand Slam events with the U.S. Open, but that was because of his own vaccination situation, and that was based on a very fluky health hazard situation in the entire world, basically a makeshift plague, so to speak, how everyone was shutting down everything because they didn't know how to react to a specific disease. But the point is, you're looking at Djokovic and how much better he is than everyone else who's ever played the sport. The resumes, when he retires, are not going to be close to Federer and Nadal. He's clearly number one of one. It's not Gretzky better than the rest of hockey, but it's probably closer to, I don't want to say uh, Jordan over LeBron, because I do think people can make an argument for that. I don't think there's much of an argument anymore for Federer or Nadal. So I'm trying to think of a good sport to make a comparison for. And I really just don't have one. I think he's in a spot. Okay, I'll give you one. I think he's Jerry Rice in NFL terms compared to other wide receivers. You can look at Nadal, look at Federer, and you still have a Randy Moss in there. You still have some elite-level receivers. But there's only one Jerry, and there's only one Djokovic. That's my main point I want to make. He's one of one. Deal with it. If you don't like Djokovic, that's fine. If you're against him, that's fine. I'm not one of those people, but I think that based on the stats on paper and the resume, he's easily the best to ever do it. But anyway, that's my brief uh, takeaways from the match and from Djokovic's legacy itself. Medvedev's going to have to make some adjustments once again if he wants to win some grand slams, or he's going to have to wait it out for Djokovic to leave the sport and then hope that Alcaraz loses early and he can steal a grand slam title. But he's really going to have to change up his play style, and unfortunately his stubbornness did cost him the Grand Slam title here in the U.S. Open, as well as our lock and dog picks. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Find me on Twitter at Rice Show Radio. Find me on the NBA show, the MLB show, and a bunch of other podcasts with the network. A reminder, we'll be back once again at some point next week to get into the two ATP events in China. But until next time, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.